now I have to take off my song-leading hat, put on my preaching hat. They're very different hats. So this morning, as I was thinking about what to do with the day's lesson, I wanted to keep intact with the series we've been undergoing, or that we will be starting, Same Storm, Different Boat. We just got done with the series on the seashore, so it makes sense that we've left the seashore, and now we're on a boat right next to it. This is the same kind of idea of what we talked about in our previous sermon. All of the sermons up to this point have showed us that the points of conflict, metaphorically, very powerfully, happen on the the edge of water and land. We talked about it in Bible class, the teens informed us of this, that throughout the Old Testament, the idea of water is tied to the idea of evil and chaos. The solid ground being a place of peace and refuge. So as these two things collide, it makes sense that there would be conflict. But the reality is, the grand majority of our life isn't going to be spent on the seashore. The grand majority of our life is going to be spent way out in the middle of the chaos. In the middle of the chaotic storm. So what do we do when we find ourselves in the midst of the chaos? How do we respond in, the, in light of all of the difficulties that this life can throw at us? How do we recover? Well, lucky for us, the Bible has a lot to say on that. Today we're going to be starting off with the story. The story of Noah's Ark. Now, the first time I heard Noah's Ark, like many of you, I was an absolute, I don't probably even remember, I was an infant in a cradle roll. As with a felt board, there was a giant boat and a whole bunch of weird-looking animals going up in it. And we were singing songs like God told Noah to build him an arky-arky. And that's my first exposure to it. And it was a simple enough story, right? The world was bad. God flooded it. There were animals. God saved the animals. Put him in a boat along with this dude named Moses and his, or Noah and his family. And then off to the races we go. But then I got older. And that story took on a different message. A very difficult message. One that I've really struggled with. One that I've really wrestled with. One that, no matter how often I come back to it, it leaves me paused. It leaves me concerned. Not only me, but in a teen class not too long ago, one of our brightest students mentioned that they struggle too with the flood. Because it just doesn't seem to sound like God. Let me get this straight. The world was bad. The world's always been bad. And yet God killed everyone? How does this reflect the cross? And how do we make sense of the events that occurred? Well, that was as dark as it's going to get for a little bit. So let's lighten this back up and ask the two questions I hope this morning we can answer. First, how does this story reflect the cross? And question number two, what exactly happened here? And how can we make sense of it today? By answering these two questions, I hope that we can leave here with a better understanding not only of the story, but also of the God behind the story. Because my primary objective as a minister is not necessarily to teach you all things, because if you had to rely on my knowledge, we'd all be in trouble. But it's simply to point you to a beautiful God. And I would attest to you the same thing I attest to my teens the very first Sunday I got here. I promise you, definitively, however beautiful you think God is, he's more beautiful. 
And however good his message you think is, it's better. And it's my responsibility as a minister simply to point you to that beautiful Jesus, more beautiful than our minds can ever fully fathom. Let's break into the story today. And uh, let me be honest, since the junior worship and bridge builder kids are out, I don't mind hitting the story a little deeper. Talking about a little bit of some complex stuff, as well as wrestling with some moral dilemmas. Because we're adults here. And this is part of faith, is wrestling. Let's read the story together, at least the introduction of it. And then we'll jump into the rest of the lesson. When humankind began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humankind were beautiful. Thus they took wives for themselves from any they chose. So the Lord said, My spirit will not remain in humankind indefinitely, since they are mortal. They will remain for 120 more years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also after this, when the sons of God would sleep with the daughters of humankind, who gave birth to their children. They were the mighty heroes of old, the famous men. But the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind had become so great on the earth. Every inclination of the thoughts of their mind was evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made humankind. And he was highly offended. So the Lord said, I will wipe humankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, everything from humankind to animals, including creatures that move on the ground and the birds of the air, for I regret that I have made them. But, but Noah found favor in the sight of God. This idea, this story, rightly captures our attention. It, it captures our focus because of its uniqueness. Because of all the things that happen, there's no other story in the entire Bible like it. There's never a global judgment. There's never this act of redemption. And by just in full fairness, there's not a single but in the Bible that is more important than that one. And so much is in this short text. But maybe you, like me, read that and begin to scratch your head on the entire first five verses of it. The sons of God, daughters of man, giants, Nephilim, what is going on? And then you look through the Bible, and you begin to look at the other passages that the flood narrative is mentioned. We have a passage in, gentlemen... Thank you. Uh, We have a passage in Jude that says this, In the same way when some of the angels did not keep to their rightful place of authority, but abandoned their own homes, he kept them under conditions of darkness and in eternal chains to await the judgment of the great day. In verse 14, Enoch, the seventh in line from Adam, prophesied about these people. Look, he said, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to perform judgment against all and to charge every human being with the, uh, all, ungodly and all the ungodly ways in which they have done ungodly things and with every harsh word which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You tie that with a passage found in 1 Peter where it says, For the Messiah too suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring to you God. He was put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. In the spirit, too, he went and made the proclamation of the spirits in prison, who had earlier been disobedient during the days of Noah, when God waited in patience. Noah built the ark in which a few people, eight in fact, were rescued through water. That functions as a signpost for you, pointing to baptism, which now rescues you, not by washing away fleshly pollution, but by the appeal to God of a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. And he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. 
Well, see, I thought this morning when I was putting together the lesson that by looking through the rest of the Bible at other times the flood was mentioned, I would walk away with answers. I was left asking the exact same question. What exactly happened here? There are these angels, there are demons, there are Nephilim, there is sin, there is judgment, there is forgiveness, there is an eternal chain of utter darkness and all sorts of stuff. At one point, Jesus, while he's in the tomb, is going to these people and talking to them, and I'm left scratching my head. And the reason why I'm struggling, we struggle with this story, is because we read it through our eyes, not theirs. Every culture has their stories, right? Paul Bunyan. I think that's the one with the giant axe. Someone nod if I'm right. Is that Paul Bunyan with the blue ox? Okay, good, good, good. Johnny Appleseed, I know that one. It's in his name. He walked around and threw apple seeds and planted all the apple trees in America. We have these cultural stories, don't we? And we pass them down. Not only that, but in our histories. We know more about American history than most other countries. Why? Because it's our history. But every textbook doesn't cover every part of every, every element of the story. And every story, there's going to be multiple perspectives. And in order to fully understand something, you should probably read multiple sources, right? The same is true with the Jewish story of the flood. We get the bare bones of it in Genesis chapter 6 through Genesis chapter 8. But then we get to Jude and there's Enoch talking about it. What is that all about? And then they're referencing stories that we don't understand because it's not in our text. So today, for just a moment, I want us to step into the Jewish world. I want you to pretend, for just a moment, that I am the Jewish rabbi. You are my faithful students. And I'm going to tell you the story of the flood the way they would have heard it. Using the Bible and their stories. Once we understand that, we can go back to these New Testament passages. See if we can understand the flood and walk away, I believe, challenged and changed by it. So let's start here. In the beginning, Psalm 82, if you are following along in your Bible, in the beginning of time, God decided he was going to create the world. So he went and surveyed the land of the world, and he stood upon its chaotic waters, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And he looked out and he saw the potential. And so God, in his infinite wisdom as the divine artist, painted and sculpted a world so stunning and beautiful that we now have today. And he looked out at this world and he saw that it was stunning and beautiful. But it was lacking rulers. So he chose two people, Adam and Eve, image bearers of him, to be the kings and queens that would forever rule this place. But in Genesis chapter 3, we all know the story. We messed up and we lost our kingship. And the whole project was going to be lost, so God needed to do something drastic, and he did. He used angels, and he broke up the nations of the earth and the people. Psalm 82 talks about this. And he said, you are going to take care of my, my children. They're lost and confused, and they're hurting. It's your responsibility to help guide them. And for a while it worked. I mean, sin still existed, but all in all, things were okay. Until Genesis chapter 6 happened. And the angels saw the humans, and decided to try to join with them. It wasn't enough for them to rule from the sidelines and help under a veil. They wanted to be out front, center stage. And they wanted to write the narrative their way. And so, as we see in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, 
The sons of God, these angels, and humans created these Nephilim. Now, I'm not here going to tell you what those are because I have no earthly idea. But in a book called First Enoch, a storybook that they used, it says this, It came to pass that when the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born two of them beautiful and comely daughters, and the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them, and said to one another, Come, let us choose from wives from among the children. This is the passage, actually, that is being referenced in Jude, as Jude talks about when Enoch is prophesying on these things. So this is the story. One thing I find fascinating is here we are, and we're already starting to get towards the flood, and really none of the story is about us. Have you noticed that? It was about us for about one chapter, and we lost that. Then there was angelic warfare, and now there's angels in charge of nations, and all sorts of stuff. God at the center. As we're going to go through the rest of the story, I want you to realize something that kind of dawned on me. The Bible isn't bishop-centered. It's not you-centered. In fact, it's not even really human-centered. It's Jesus-centered. And what we're going to see throughout this text is that we've always made it out to be about man, when in actuality the truth of the text is found in how it's about God. We see that these angels came and caused a lot of problems, teaching people to do bad things, and they were killing each other and hurting each other, and violence and iniquity were rising up. That's what Genesis 6 says. And eventually it became so bad that men all over were dying, humankind suffering immensely. The iniquities of humankind have become great. Every inclination of their thought has become evil, Genesis chapter 6 says. And not only that, but it gets from bad to worse, the story goes on. Remember, this is the Jewish story. This is what they would tell their kids. And the woman have born giants, and the whole world has been filled with blood and unrighteousness. And now behold, the souls of those who died are crying and making their suit to the gates of heaven. And their lamentations have ascended. And the whole earth was ruined in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence, Genesis 6.11. So, to put it all together, in case you got lost, let me hit the bare bones. God chooses us, we let him down. God sends angels to help us, they let him down. And it ends in a lot of bad stuff happening on earth, iniquity and sin and violence and all sorts of bad stuff until God realizes the earth, the creation project as a whole, is about to fail. Everything's gone wrong that can go wrong. Every single thing was ruined. The image bearers no longer reflected God, not only in our actions, but now we actually have these Nephilim running around. But more importantly, that heart that God gave us, the heart of kindness and gentleness and compassion, was lost in violence and hate. Not only were the image bearers about to be ruined, but the creation itself was ruined. The rise of evil and darkness was further destroying everything. The curse that had started in Genesis 3 was really taking root here. Everything was going wrong that could go wrong. So God is surveying the scene. And in the the storybook, the Jewish tale... It goes that Michael, the chief of the angels, gathered together Gabriel and Raphael and Uriel, and they come before God and they say, God, what are you doing? Everything's going wrong. Your whole mission's about to fail. And God says, I'm not doing nothing. I'm waiting. I'm hoping that someone can change the world. But God found Noah. But God found Noah. What's interesting is time passed, a lot of time, in the, according to the Jewish storybooks, a lot of time passed. 
And things were getting from bad to worse to worse to worse. And, and everyone was asking, when is it going to get better? The angels are, are waiting on deck, standing on the edge of heaven with their sword drawn, saying, God, let us in this. This is terrible. And God's saying, not yet, not yet, not yet. Why? Because his objective wasn't to destroy, it was to save. He's holding them back. Wait, just a little longer. It says that he was looking through the earth. He was scouring the earth for one person, anybody, that he could find and hitch his wagon to and trust to save the world, and he did in Noah. And what the beautiful part of this is, is that Noah was an absolute train wreck. We see it moments after the flood. The first thing he does, he gets off the boat and gets drunk. But he was favorable in God's eyes. And God used this broken man to save the world. It was through Noah that God created this desperate mercy mission. And and an idea was hatched that they were going to save humanity with the flood. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, and on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of heaven were opened, and the rain fell on the earth. Forty days and forty nights. And we look at this flood. And I think we come at it the wrong way. Because this isn't God's anger and burning wrath destroying the world. It's God's desperate mercy mission to salvage the shambles of his creation project. And one thing I think is very fascinating. It is true. That there is a center man in the, at, the, at the crux of this, Noah. But who are the villains here? I've always been told that it was the wickedness of people, which is partially true. But it's who the enemy has always been. Satan and his forces of darkness. It's always been them. It's always been them corrupting and trying to destroy, and God realized that he needed to do something that the enemy wouldn't expect. A sneak attack, if you will. In the storybook that we've been referencing, First Enoch, this is what God says the purpose of the flood is. And then shall the whole earth be tilled in righteousness, and shall be all and shall all be planted with trees and full of blessings. And all desirable trees shall be planted in it, and they shall plant vines on it. And the vine which they plant thereon shall yield wine in abundance. And as for all of the seed which is sown, each measure shall bear a thousand, and each measure of olives ten presses of oil. That just is a really old school way of saying things were going to be good. But this is my favorite part. And cleanse the earth from all oppression, unrighteousness, sin, all godlessness and uncleanness that's on the earth. And the children of men shall become righteous, and the earth shall be cleansed from all defilements and all sins and all punishment and all torment. We come at the flood the wrong way. At the very heart of the flood is that message, to save people from themselves. You know, what's interesting is it's so easy for us to relate to the wrong things. It's so easy for us to relate to the evil, to the violence, to the destruction. It's hard for us to relate to the mercy. It's easier for us to picture God as the judge with the stick that's waiting to hit us. And it's harder for us to conceive of a God who truly is love. And I get why, right? 
Because here we are on earth, and all of us are used to people that don't show inexplicable love, but show inexplicable hurt. There's an old proverb that I really enjoy that says, God made man in his image, and man being the gentleman returned the favor. We make God out like us. We come to stories like this, and we read the simplest text, the simplest understanding, and cling on to it, holding to a broken image of God. Instead of the beautiful mission of mercy coming through the pages, we get caught believing of a terrifying God with a terrifying will. Let's reframe this quickly as we conclude. It's unbelievable. How did I put together a sermon in two and a half hours and I'm still going long? It's the curse of preachers, man. You just get excited. You're talking up here and then you lose track of time. Okay, let's reframe the mission. Now we're going to hit it up into hyperspeed just a bit faster because I still got four slides to get through in four and a half minutes. Don't time me. Just don't do it. The story reflects the cross beautifully. This mission reflects the cross beautifully. God is willing to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait to destroy the world, hoping, desperately hoping, that a human can step up and do something to change it. And sure enough, there is one. Just one, mind you, but one nonetheless. And it was through this one man that God changed the world forever. This perfectly reflects the cross because for generations and generations and generations, there was no one who could save humanity, save one, Jesus. And he did. You want to talk about a radical mission, flooding the world to destroy the Nephilim and to push back the angels, and at some point in this cosmic conflict, we don't know where or why, those bad angels were tied up so they couldn't hurt us anymore. That happened, we know, because of 1 Peter. I don't understand what that means. It doesn't really matter. What it does mean is that there was something happening behind the scenes that God was desperately trying to do to save humanity. Against the forces of darkness, against our own stupidity, against it all, God was working to try to save us. And there wasn't any stone he would, he would not undo. There's nothing he wouldn't consider. I mean, goodness gracious, a giant boat? That was his answer to save the world. Just like a carpenter's son out of Nazareth, dying a criminal? Who would have thought of that? God is always willing to go to extreme lengths, inexplicable distances, do the unthinkable to save you. And the flood is just the oldest iteration of that story played out. A merciful God waiting and waiting and waiting, hoping the people will change. Hoping desperately to save them. And ultimately, even when people chose to align with the darkness, his eyes were on the future where he could bring them peace. The mission of mercy of the flood is the same mission of mercy we have today. The mission of standing up and being that Noah who can rise up and be the one God can use to change the world. It also reframes something else. It reframes the way we view the boat. So this is fun. I um, was talking to my dad about this a couple years ago. We did like a deep dive on the ark. One thing that we found that was pretty amazing is that there was way, way more space on the ark than was used. In fact, there was almost an entire wing and a half that wasn't used at all. Why? Why did God make a boat too big? 
I asked one of my teens that one time, and their answer was, well, God was going to bring all these other animals, and they just annoyed him too much. He figured they had a good restart, so he kept them off the boat. It's possible. But the more likely outcome is that this nature of Christ that we see manifested on the cross is revealed there too. That God took Noah and told him to build it. By the way, you look at the processes by which they built the boat, it was the least efficient way. Why did God tell Noah to build an inefficient boat that was too big? Time. 100 years of time. A century of time. So that he could look around and preach. So that that boat could be filled with the people he was trying to save. He was using Noah not only as the original boat builder, but as one of the original preachers of a message of sanctification and salvation from the destruction of a force of evil. It reframes the boat because God has always wanted to fill the boat. That's been his objective since Genesis chapter Now, granted, we're not in a giant boat, but we're in the kingdom of God, and he wants to fill that too. Anything that it takes to fill this place so that we can bring people out of the death and into the life, that's God's objective. And he'll take 100 years or 2,000 to do it, always waiting for that next Noah who can make a difference in someone's life and bring them on the boat. This story reveals to me That there is a cosmic force of darkness I don't understand. There is conflicts that happen all around me that I don't understand. We'll get to that in just a moment. But one thing I do know is this. There is death and there is hurting and there is sin. There is suffering, there is injustice, there is oppression. All around us. And then there's us. The Noahs. Who can fill the boat. It's up to us. To fill the boat. With our actions, our compassion, and our love. To fill the boat. And lastly, that was more than four minutes. The story serves as a reminder that there's more going on than meets the eye. The simple answer is that we are bad people. And we deserve to be punished. There's truth to that, I guess. But the story doesn't start with people in Genesis chapter 6. It starts with something we don't fathom. Angels. Demons, Nephilim, giants. And you know what? The Bible's so frustratingly vague. It does this all the time. There's this, my favorite story in the whole Bible. This is a side tangent. Daniel chapter 10 happens, and it cracks me up. Daniel prays, 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 prays for an oracle to come to him. He needs God's voice. That's what he wants. Day goes by, five days go by, seven, 14, 21 days. Finally, Daniel loses his cool, and he goes to God and says, God, you promised me an oracle. 21 days ago. Get here. And in that very moment, the veil was ripped. This angel, blood-soaked and in battle array, comes falling out of the heavens. And he goes, dude, I'm here. Take the book. Now I have to go because I'm fighting the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece back here. And Michael the archangel's coming because there's a whole other force coming. And Daniel falls on his face and starts throwing up. Because he's like, I don't, what? None of that. I didn't realize But then we never actually hear the rest of that. We just get these snippets. This is one of those snippets, right? Things are happening on earth. Bad things are happening on earth. And we're confused. We're looking at the story like, I don't understand that. This is really weird. Yeah, it is. But it reminds us that there's stuff going on behind the scenes. Things that we're not privy to. Cosmic conflict that causes problems all around us. Spiritual warfare that's very real. Between the forces of good and the forces of evil. 
You and I are caught in the crossfires a lot. Isn't that the whole story of Job? Satan and God, Satan accuses God of being unjust. God puts Job on the defense stand. And Job unwittingly is now the key point of a battle between God and Satan. He had no idea. Sometimes I think we look for too many simple answers. And we begin to oversimplify things. I have cancer. Why? Well, God must have wanted me to. I lost my loved one. Why? Because God wanted that to happen. Really? Or maybe we're missing the point. Maybe there's things happening behind the scenes we don't understand. Maybe God is who God says he is, good and light and love, and he's always fighting the darkness. And maybe there's the Nephilim 2.0. Maybe there's a prince of Greece that's causing problems. The point is, something else may be happening. This story of the flood started for me as a theodicy problem, trying to understand so desperately how God could do this thing. And when I ended it, I realized that I left believing in God's goodness more than when I started. Because all I see as I look through the story of the flood is the cosmic powers of darkness trying and trying and trying and trying and trying to destroy and kill and steal, as Jesus says they do in John 10.10. And God coming time and again to bring life. The flood serves as a reframe for me to consider the fact that I am part of something bigger. And I have a job. But I'm also caught in the crossfire. Sometimes my life is going to go good, and sometimes my life is not. Sometimes things will go my way, and sometimes they won't. But one thing I need to remain sure in is that God is good. And he is always trying to bring me out of it. The story of the flood, that's not the story they teach you in Bible class, right? When you're a little kid, God told Noah to build him an archiarchy because the Nephilim were... It doesn't work. But it does reveal to us something important. God is truly beautiful. There's not a story in the Bible that doesn't paint him as that. When we come across difficult texts like the flood, wrestle with it and look at it, because what you'll find is that God truly is more beautiful than we could ever fathom. As we leave here today, I want us to consider these three thoughts. I don't know why I'm stepping down. I'm about to have to lead a song. I'm just going to go for it. I want us to consider these three thoughts. One, how are we portraying and doing the mission? The mission that God started at the flood and is true today. The mission to save people who are hurting and lost. How, does, how do we stack up as this generation's Noah? Willing to rise up and fill the boat in order to save people we love and care about. And how are we participating in and fighting in the spiritual conflict all around us? These answers are going to define our success or our failures as Christians. It's up to us. It's up to us to stand firm like Noah, to fill the boat like Noah, and to bring his mission to the world. In my life and in yours, there are people I love that aren't faithful to Christ. And worse than that, there are people that I love that don't even know Jesus like I do. And worse than that, there are people who say they know Jesus and don't know him for the beautiful man that he is. And you know, worse than that, there are times I don't know Jesus for the beautiful man that he is, the God that he is. Each one of us needs time to reconnect 
to reorient, sometimes to pray off things that are happening, sometimes to survive a cosmic attack. Whatever it is that you're struggling with, we want to help. And we want to pray with you. Because we love you. We're glad you're part of our boat. But we ask that you fill it. If there's anything that's stopping you now, in just a moment, we're going to sing a song. We'll all stand up. There'll be elders in the back. Go talk to them. Catch me afterwards. I'm the guy in the Canadian tuxedo. It's hard to miss. And I'll be here to pray with you, to care for you, as we all are, as we're doing our best to fulfill God's mission. Let's stand and let's sing our final song.